You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Douglas. And I'm Heather. And you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. Money is widely known as one of the leading causes of divorce in America. It's estimated that financial problems contribute to 20 to 40% of all divorces. That means for every 10 marriages that end in divorce, four of them are because of money. Yet, there are strikingly few resources available to young couples embarking on their journey together. Furthermore, there's little realization of the underlying causes of financial distress. Certainly, there's overspending and low incomes and high inflation, etc. But my guests today point out that our money beliefs are entangled with our identities and thus relationship conflicts cut deep into the heart of power struggles around gender, class, culture, and more. In this episode with Douglas and Heather Bonaparte, we delve into how. Douglas and Heather Bonaparte are the authors of the newsletter, The Joint Account, where they help identify couples' money beliefs, which are at the core of their relationship struggles. Their forthcoming book, The Merge, Navigating the Power Struggles Over Money and Relationships, will be published by Harriman House Press in 2025. Douglas and Heather, welcome to Earn and Invest. Heather, let's start with you. I always go for the most difficult question first. Talk about the power struggles in your own marriage in the past, and how did money play a part? Oh, wow. We're just jumping right in, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having us, first of all. Um, You know, so before I joined Douglas at his uh, wealth management firm full-time last fall, in the fall of 2022, I was a corporate lawyer uh, for about 12 years. And throughout that time, uh, you know, Doug and I had an interesting had an interesting dynamic in our own relationship. There were times when I was more of the breadwinner and uh, when Doug was first starting out. And we really used my salary and my income and my stability for him to be able to take risks and grow his firm and kind of be able to sleep well at night with the safety and security of knowing that I, I had his back. But over a certain period of time, you know, I mean, I, so I graduated law school during the recession. Or, you know, like on the heels of the Great Recession, six figures of student loan debt, needed to get a job, ended up in an underpaid position in a in an area of law that I wasn't really planning to practice in. It wasn't really my my dream or my goal. But, you know, I was happy to be employed. And and we kind of, you know, started off our our early careers with that construct. Doug building out a firm in a book of business, me holding down, you know, a stable salary. Uh, But over the years, as Doug began to flourish, Doug began to get clients, tried to, you know, grow his own um, notoriety within the financial planning space. I was still there holding down this job, holding down the stable salary, being the safety net for him. During this time, we also had two children. We also weathered a pandemic. And it kind of felt 
to me that, yes, even though I was proud of my own growth and my own professional trajectory and where I had gone and the money that I was bringing into our household, it didn't really feel fair. So over the course of time, money played a huge role in the dynamics of our relationship because um, there became a point where it felt like, at least from my standpoint, like I was being asked to, to, do, to do it all, to do both, to kind of hold down that safety net for him to be able to take risks, but also kind of deal with the invisible load of motherhood, of having two children, weathering that experience through a pandemic of our children home and us working from home. I mean, it was a difficult time. You know, we reached a point where I said to Doug, who, by the way, over the course of this 10 to 12 years, was making more money than me at that point. So that power dynamic did shift. I went from the breadwinner to the person who whose spouse was earning much more. That definitely shifted a lot about household responsibilities and also kind of like who, who received the deference of time. And that mattered a lot over the last four or five years, right? Like when you see young families with two working parents trying to figure out, um, you know, juggle responsibilities during this incredibly, incredibly stressful few years we've had, it mattered who was making more money. That person was given the deference of time. That person had to pick up less uh, responsibilities at home. And it just kind of felt like, whoa, I went from I went from this one place of kind of like shouldering um, the early burdens of, of the financial stability in our relationship to the other side of things where like now he's he's flying high and, and having this like very successful, lucrative career. But I'm still. I'm still kind of left holding the bag on some of these things. So when we talk about like power struggles, I mean, th this is a this was a real thing that we experienced in our relationship. And if Doug is an expert, is a money expert, and this is like we are people who should be doing this well. I'm a lawyer. Doug's a financial advisor, and we're constantly checking in with each other. I mean, we've been together since college, and if we feel like we can't get it right, and if I'm looking at each other like it's just like these changes don't happen overnight. These come from like years of tiny cuts. That's how resentment builds up. And that's how we get to kind of the place that we were in. And I and I turned him and I said, something's got to change. Douglas, let's broaden the conversation a little bit. Heather talked about coming into the workplace after the Great Recession. We're talking about the COVID pandemic. And then we're also talking about just a change in the nature of the power and financial and gender dynamics you founded Bonafide Wealth, a financial advising firm to provide money advice to millennials and young professionals. Are things different for this generation? Because as I hear Heather talk about your guys' struggles, I'm thinking about the broader struggles of the millennials you're helping in your advisory firm. Uh -huh. It's a little bit more raw, I feel, for this group of adults coming of age right now. Yeah, I you know, I think every generation has its challenges that are unique to them and obviously I focus on millennials where it's very noisy. I think we live in the noisiest and cloudiest of of times and uh you have the double-edged sword of technology being uh, a big reason for that. Um Having a lot of access is great. Access to investing, access to information, uh, access to goods and services. You can get anything you want delivered to your house by Amazon in a day or two. This is all fantastic. The other side of that 
is the noise is, you know, what is accurate, what is, you know, expected out of you. Seeing so much can cloud what it is that you really want for yourself. Also, we were put in an interesting position when we were told that if you educate yourself and you go to college and take out the debt, you know, pay for this education and it will take care of you. Uh, was really the linchpin behind a lot of the financial thinking and issues that 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 our generation faced. And that's what Heather and I initially wrote about in our first book was how did we find ourselves in this position where we thought we were doing everything correct because we were told that this is the right way to do it. And then you enter 2008 and it all blows up, you know, and, and there's enough blame to go around. But the very people who said, hey, you know, go do this thing are partly responsible for that not working out in the first place, right? The joke of, you know, getting getting um, criticized for participation trophies when the people giving us the participation trophies are the ones that criticized us. It's it's absolutely crazy. So like this, this is like the, the millennial plight in a nutshell. Maybe that's too strong of a word, but, you know, our challenges in sifting through a tremendous amount of information and stimulus uh, is indeed one of our greatest challenges out there. But from, from an economic and financial standpoint, you know, just now we're seeing wage growth like wages haven't grown. Um, the housing market, you know, it is next to impossible now for someone in the middle class to seek out home ownership. Uh, you see the vast majority of wealth owned by baby boomers and older relative to when we were all the same age. That stat holds true. So the financial realities that millennials face are complicated, are, are certainly difficult. And that's weighed against just how much better quality of life is because of the things that we have access to today, you know, in, in the internet plus era, just coin that right there. So this is this is what I spend my days, you know, helping my clients navigate. Um, and you could probably extrapolate how dynamic it is for couples to deal with that environment, to raise children, to seek out great things in life like home ownership, or simply strive for happiness and balance in their relationship uh, and in their lives. It's really tricky, but luckily there are tools and things out there that can help with this. Obviously, Heather and I are, you know, providing that information in context with what we write in the book that's coming out. I do it in practice as well. I'm, I'm overall very bullish on our generation and our ability to achieve because we have overcome quite a bit. And again, you know, this is not to say our parents' generation or our grandparents didn't have their challenges. I think they've had challenges that are far greater in terms of what's happened in a social climate. I, my father's quick to remind me of what civil rights in Vietnam was like. I have a grandfather who was a frontline infantryman in World War II. I, I know that these are things our generation hasn't really had to face. But then again, there are undertones and direct things there. A pandemic, uh, the global recession, you know, uh, greatest economic event since the Great Depression. The internet age. Yeah, the just, internet just the age. internet. Yeah, yeah. We are, we are, are, I would argue that millennials, given their exposure early on to the internet, are quite numb from traumatic events that have taken place throughout our childhood and now adult lives. 
But the int- most interesting thing to me about the generation is we are the only generation and will be the only generation to have one foot in a digital world and one foot in a non-digital world. And I think that is absolutely cool and unique for who we are. We can appreciate the fact that our parents had to get up to change the TV channel with a knob on the TV, as well as the you know five-in-one remote control that could access five streaming services and basic cable as well. So Heather, Douglas has done a great job of laying out the millennial plight, all the changes that have happened over the last 10 to 15 years. Talk to me about the epiphany that you both had that you decided to really concentrate on the lens of couples and the power dynamic between them. Well, so like I said, Doug and I have been together since college. We really felt like, and especially not just because we wrote a book on millennials and their monies. So we wrote a book of millennials and their money in 2017 that was more focused on student loan debt and, and overcoming student loan debt and kind of like like a, it, I would consider it a, um, it went along a timeline, let's say, like here are the things you can do to adult correctly, just to jumpstart your adult life and to find financial freedom. We've seen it before. We've, you know what I mean? Like a lot of people kind of take this very um, chronological approach and methodical approach to how you can kind of build piece by piece the life you want. And maybe that made sense for us. We had just had our first child. We were in our late 20s, early 30s. And we kind of finally started to feel like the recession was behind us and our career was in front of us. And that if we just, you know, deployed these tools and, and tactics and we just kept checking in with each other, we would be okay. That's not how life works. Okay. <laughs> we are now in our late 30s. And it, I, I'm realizing that so many of the boxes that you think you can check to like, win at money in a relationship or to win a good marriage by doing these things. Like we are all subject to the, to the conditions that change constantly to circumstances beyond our control and how we continue to navigate those is how we continue to evolve and get better and appreciate each other and weather those storms. So like our thirties going through the pandemic, I mean, I'll be the first to tell you that I've got a little PTSD from the pandemic. And I think that Doug does too. Um, You know, our children were one and four in March of 2020. I had just settled into a a new in-house legal role that I was very proud of at a company that I'd worked at once previously. And Doug's firm was doing great. I I could not have imagined how I would feel three years later. I I just couldn't have imagined it. And it was a humbling thing. I mean, Doug and I, like I said, like we've we've been together for a long time. We have a strong marriage. We communicate well. We really are best friends, as tacky as that sounds. I couldn't believe, but it really, like, it really shook me to my core the notion that if I felt like this, and we're also very educated people, if I felt this way, I just I just couldn't imagine how like other people must feel. And so we kind of started digging into this idea that so many of our beliefs and our value systems are so rooted in these like predisposed ideas about money and how we bring those to the table together are incredibly stressful like whether or not 
money is the reason. I mean, money is is certainly a a reason that people get divorced. There's different statistics. Some say that it's the most, it's like the leading reason people get divorced. Others say that it's not. But one thing that you'll see is that it is the most common recurring systemic issue that people fight about in their marriage. Mm-hmm. And um, And money doesn't just mean like the way that an account is set up. Like money is not just money. Do you know what I mean? And so that's what we're trying to get at here. This book is not going to be another chronological timeline. Here's how you here's how you merge your accounts. Here's how you, you you deal with moving into a house and trying to buy a house together or whatever. Like we're really digging into the feelings and the issues like behind those uh financial mechanisms that you have to put in place um to really find because when when you're looking at people's money values, you're really looking at them. And so when you're challenging somebody's beliefs about something financially, you're really challenging something about them. And so we've we've kind of come to this point now where we're like, there's there's no one doing this. There's no one talking about it in this way. So that's kind of how we got here. I know that was a long-winded, long-winded explanation, but I mean that's 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 how we got here. It's a little messy, but that's that's what it is. Douglas, as Heather was talking, you were shaking your head. Yes. And your forthcoming book is titled The Merge. We were just discussing how people come to relationships with predisposed ideas about money. How thoughtful are couples a priori about kind of their money issues going into a relationship? Is this something people are talking about? Not enough. And I think you find yourself merging with your partner having really not uncovered your own identity and relationship with money. And the thing that fascinates me the most is, well, what happens if two people, and this is probably more typical than not, are now coming together to merge their lives and their financial lives, and they both don't know enough about themselves and their own relationship with money and their thoughts and their feelings. It's a wonderful setup for a giant mess. And it lends itself to all the statistics and all the issues that you have around relationships and money, because people are not only not talking about this with one another, but even if they were, they don't know their own identity with money to bring to the table. And that is largely what we're looking to solve in writing a book that's not, as Heather pointed out, here's the best way to invest or set up your account structure. Sure, there's a place for that and we want to know that. But how do you communicate with your partner about who you are and your thoughts and your feelings and your experience with money that are now showing up in the day-to-day and month-to-month things that you have to do? You have to do. You cannot opt out of this. Like opting out of a conversation or the dealings of money in your relationship is a one-way ticket to there not being a relationship. And and this notion that you win, you know, that there's there's an end, like you win at money, there's an end to this, that is also extraordinarily false. It never ends and it never stays the same. It evolves and it devolves and it evolves again. It it is cyclical, it follows patterns. Because behaviors have patterns. So to get people to understand more about themselves and how to bring themselves to the table, but to be heard and have someone that's capable of listening is what this is really about. If you can get there, if you can get a fraction of that, 
you'll be on your way to actually winning something, winning at not money, but winning in your relationship. That's where we want you to win, right? Heather, let's talk about this idea of being heard. You know, we made this point that the way we deal with money really is deeply ingrained in our identity. So as we're talking about couples together, is the idea being heard or is the idea changing that money identity as a couple? I don't think you can really change somebody's identity. I mean, that's, you know, you can change behaviors and you can find a compromise between your two money values and how you choose to navigate those together. But I don't think you're going to change who somebody is. I don't, that's just not what I believe. And I think that that's maybe one of the bigger problems is that without having these conversations with your partner, you don't know the reason why something is important to them. I'm going to give you a great example because we've been interviewing tons of real couples for our book. It's It's been like the most enlightening experience um, for our own personal lives too, not just for the book. Like we're really learning a lot about ourselves too, through hearing the way that other couples, um, you know, approach their money and each other. But one of the first couples we interviewed, the wife grew up in a divorced home. Her mother has had some, uh, you know, struggles and they didn't really have a big Christmas. The husband was a financial advisor and kind of felt like, like really, really kept the ropes pretty tight on their finances. Like he had a budget, he had a spreadsheet, we're sticking to it. She felt very, very strongly that they needed to have a bigger Christmas every year. Like we need to have a bigger Christmas. We just didn't have enough. We want to, she wanted to spend more. And it became a point of contention for them because he kind of grew up um, in a different culture where it wasn't a big deal. Like you didn't spend a lot of money on holidays like this, not a lot of gifts, not a lot of pomp and circumstance. Over the years, he realized that the reason it was so important to her was because she didn't have it growing up, was because of the relationship with her mother and like a strained family dynamic that she was trying to improve for their own nuclear family as adults. And so even though it went outside of his normal like like budget and kind of like keeping control of those things, he had to like respect where she was coming from on this and kind of amend his own behavior. A little bit. And that's just one simple example of, of, you know, us compromising, compromising. We're not changing our values. We're just compromising because we love our partner. Douglas, you say you want to help partners find equity in their relationship, even when the playing field isn't equal. What does that mean? What does equity look like in a relationship when it comes to money? Equality is maybe impossible to achieve, right? People make different money. People have different roles and tasks in their relationship. Heather mentioned the the invisible hands of childcare. I mean, I'm a full contact father, but I would be lying to you to say that I am equal in a lot of the domestic things that take place like laundry, uh, particularly. I cannot fold little kids clothing to save myself. I think this is a struggle every man faces. But I can try. I can try and do things that are, you know, more helpful and be more aware of that. So equality is very difficult to achieve, the 50-50 split. But fairness, fairness can be had, right? Fairness and equity in the relationship is something that's achievable. And one, talking about this and making it known that 
look, you're looking for equality, you might be banging your head against the wall. But if you're looking for fairness, you can have a conversation around how to divide labor, how to make sure that each person is respected in the tasks and roles that they do. So no one, you know, the example is, well, I work and make all the money and therefore I shouldn't have to do X, Y, Z. You hear that all the time from who, from the bread earner. That That's not fair, right? That That's not how you create that equity in the relationship. To understand that person says, look, I work these long hours and make this money so I can do X, Y, Z with my time. How can I make sure you're taken care of and I can also take care of myself and do the things that I believe that I maybe deserve or should have? That's the pursuit of fairness in your relationship. And the other way around, I've been at home all day you know, working with the kids and having a job at the same time. It's like I'm working two jobs here. I need some relief. I need you to step up and not leave that laundry bin by the staircase every time you walk past it. Another, you know, plight of the mail. Stop doing that, guys. Right. Go go take it upstairs. And and by the way, Heather is made it her mission for this book that we're writing to talk about the equity component. So for the record to be clear, I'm interested in making sure that couples have the tools to communicate and deal with their finances. So I want to kick it over to Heather for her to talk more about equity and relationships and why this is a big theme for what we're doing together. Well, the one important thing that I want, I mean, I think you you hit a lot of a lot of the points that we're trying to cover, but the one thing that I want to add is that we as a society have a hard time assigning value to time that isn't affixed to a paycheck. You know, historically, that impacts women more. One of the things that I'm trying to do when I say we're trying to create equity, and I agree with Doug, like equality is something you can strive for, but like maybe we'll never achieve uh, on, on a constant basis. But striving for equity constantly is like should be the goal. We really want and we will be in this book trying to assign value and show value in all of the responsibilities that go into maintaining a healthy relationship and a house and a healthy household and that it's not just about the financial component of it that is just one component of it because we could not exist as a unit without both components of it and i just think that 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 is just that that's the, one of the ways that our society operates unfortunately and it's something that we want to change like your time is not more valuable just because you are earning more money for it. That's really what it comes down to. We are talking to Douglas and Heather Bonaparte. They are the authors of the newsletter, The Joint Account, and we are discussing the power struggles over money in relationships. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. 
The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, service key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. We are back with Douglas and Heather Bonaparte. They are the authors of the newsletter, The Joint Account, and their forthcoming book is The Merge, Navigating the Power of Struggles Over Money and Relationships, and it will be published by Harriman House Press in 2025. And we are discussing power dynamics in relationships, especially when it comes to money. We've done a good job of describing what those dynamics are in the first part of the show. Let's now talk about what we can do about that. Douglas, obviously, when couples come to you, they're not coming to you at the beginning. They've already actually probably had some of these struggles, these fights, this trauma. What's the first step in beginning to heal that past trauma? That's such an awesome question. And I actually catch people in all phases of this. And I think one of the joys that I've gotten to experience in working with my generation and having been doing this for a while now, maybe seven to 10 years of exclusively or almost exclusively working with millennials is I've gotten to be with couples uh, before they've even met. Uh, They come into the relationship. Hey, I want you to meet my financial advisor, meet Doug. I've had, well, whose financial advisor are we going to use type, you know, conversations? But to your point, most of the time, yes, I'm catching people when they're already together and they realize they need some help. So to that end, it it really depends. It really depends. Because on one hand, when you have couples come to a financial advisor together, you see their willingness to communicate with each other or seek out information uh, related to their finances. It's it's a beautiful thing to see. Nothing makes me happier than seeing a couple come to every quarterly meeting, every financial planning meeting vested in their financial health. That's one of the cool parts there. However, I would be lying to tell you that more times than I would like, I'm getting one person there. And it is typically the guy. Uh, these gender norms and roles show up even to this day down to millennials and dare I say Gen Z, where we're getting even younger clients in the door. 
And that's that's not great, right? And and part of writing this book and doing this newsletter together is putting it on me to ask hard questions to my clients of why don't we have buy-in from the two of you? I remember Heather and I going to uh, an amazing event over the summer last May where a leader of a large bank wirehouse was explaining that the issue that they're having today with their older clientele is that the the mail is passing away and leaving everything behind to their wife and they do not have a clue really anything pertaining to their financial life they may have been sitting at the table for years with the advisor or broker and the husband but simply were not included in that conversation and and for me as a professional, you know, that that has to stop. That is a one-way ticket to a disaster down the road. So, you know, getting to see every getting to see clients come in at different points, the way to engage. So look, on one hand, yes, those who come to the table, I don't have that much of a concern in terms of them communicating together. But when I do ask, you know, when I when I do ask someone, well, why aren't they participating? The most common answer I get is they're afraid to show what they don't know and that they're doing something wrong. The last client I spoke to and said, well, you know, why don't you sit down with your husband or your partner and dive into where your money is and how cash flow works, these fundamental components of how money works in your household? The most common answer I get is I don't want to feel like I'm wrong, stupid, or don't know something. And I find that very interesting in that my whole goal is to make sure they are in the know. So there's a lot of feelings there. And and a lot of that comes down to how inadequate we are as a society when it comes to financial literacy and education. We have not only not taught individuals the basics of personal finance, but in not doing that, we've made it something that they are afraid of. Hmm. No, but to your point, do you remember that? Oh, I hate, there's nothing worse as a lawyer than wanting to cite something and not having that information available. But Doug and I read something recently about, do you remember the financial literacy survey where where it said like the men scored higher because they were willing to guess at yeah. the answer and the women, more women just clicked, I don't know, or NA. Yeah. But there, there's something about like when you already don't know, there's a level of shame and embarrassment that develops over time. And it's really hard to break that cycle and to say, you know what, like I'm going to humble myself and do something uncomfortable and get involved in something that I've never traditionally been involved with because it's important and we're not going to be able to have the um, conversations we need to have and really reach again that point of fairness where we're both equal voices at the table of financial decision-making for this family, if I don't have the knowledge, it's overcoming that initial fear and embarrassment. That's, that's difficult. You know, Heather and I wrote about how we're not perfect in one of our early newsletters. I think it might've been our first one in the joint account. And here you have on this podcast, a financial professional, uh, an amazing attorney, highly educated people uh, willing to admit that, look, we we don't get it right all the time. And one thing on our journey, uh, as we described earlier, where we've 
traded hats in terms of bread earner. And you, you heard about the resentment that was building up as, you know, my career took off and Heather was relegated to the, you know, safety blanket for the family, which by the way, was super comfortable. Why, why would I give, why would I want to give that up? You know, it, it humans love comfort, but the reason I would want to give that up is because I don't want my wife resenting me and I want her to be happy. I want us both to be happy. And I'm not going to want to live in a world where one of us is and isn't that that's going to bring um, difficulty into our marriage. And we we wish to avoid that. For For Heather and I to not only trade roles in terms of these things from time to time, but we got to a point where Heather was less in the know about our own financial situation than she would like to be. And if I'm being honest, then I would have wanted her to be. And ironically, one of the things I told her just the other day is, and we were talking to some friends of ours, I said, man, one of the great things about Heather working in this business is now I get another set of eyes on all the financial things that are going on. And she goes, you think that's a plus? I got to learn all this stuff. And that was kind of the point. You know, what I was excited about was something that, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, Ed, you, you, I don't know if it was nervousness or, or you were, you were wary about it, but it wasn't something, I mean, we were just coming from different sides of the equation on that. But, you know, for me to, to have now to transform the safety net of Heather working in a job that might not have been going to a place where she wanted it to go into now receiving safety from I have a partner in all these things that I'm doing, the riskier thing in our life, to me, um, meant meant a lot. And I know she'll, now I'm guess putting words in your mouth on, you're going to feel great knowing that you have control around how this household operates from a financial point of view, because there's no escaping that. Yeah, I like being in control. Um, I like being in control, <laughs> but also, you know, I think just one important clarifying point to make, we don't just see this, this dynamic in couples where there's like a scarcity problem around yeah. money. Like this isn't just something that comes up when you're scrutinizing a budget because your cash flow doesn't support your uh, your expenses. This is something like we tricked ourselves at one point in our at one point in our marriage when we kind of when I fell out of the financial like day to day operations, we tricked ourselves into it by saying like, "Well, we have enough. I don't need to know because we're making enough money that I don't really need to worry about that." So I know we're saving money and that's that's what I know. And I'm just going to focus on the other stuff that I've already got on my plate, all these things for the kids, for my job, for everything else. Like I'm going to focus on that and let him deal with the money. But two years later, I'm like, you know, what the heck? <laughs> what the heck? How did I let this happen? That's how you let it happen. It's not just when times are tough. It's when times are good too. Yeah, I, I think that's an amazing point. You know, we, you know, if, if you're asking like, hey, are, are we saving? Yeah. Are we investing? Sure. We're maxing out our retirement plans and funding the kids' college plans. Are we having fun? Yeah. We got to go on a couple of vacations and, you know, do things that don't totally bum us out or things that we love to do. All right, cool. That was a great check-in. That's probably not a great check-in. You know, uh, it's not probably. It's not. You know, it's not. That doesn't answer the question. All right. How much are we spending each month? Are we okay with that number? Without, you know, without even, you know, before you even dive into the the numbers, right? Like, do we do we even have them? Do we know how much we're making? Right? Do we know how much we're spending? Do we do we know how much cash we have? 
You know, how how are our assets doing? What about our liabilities? Are we still paying off student loan debt from our education? Should we do something differently here? How are we feeling? But Douglas, I, I have a question on this because you guys are making a very important and salient point, but it still comes down to how do we convince young people to actually do this, right? You think about relationship milestones, right? Everyone jokes about what happens on your third date. And we all know about this idea of when you meet the parents and all that kind of stuff. When you meet the financial advisor, if we want to teach people to do this better, to avoid the power dynamics and the trauma, when should we be telling young people to start doing this together? At inception. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that we need to be giving education uh, before, obviously, you're even finding yourself in that relationship. And this is going to bring us back to uh, the complete lack of education and information that's provided. We we don't teach it in the classroom. I think you're very fortunate if you have parents that understand it well enough to pass on that knowledge to you. I would put no expectations on the government to be, you know, providing you with this information. We've really created a society where you got to go do it yourself through trial and error. And if you're lucky, those errors that you will make won't blow you up. And millennials have found themselves in a period of time where financial errors can be so big, most notably around student loan debt. And borrowing, because we're a borrowing society, we're a, a consumer society, that you really can, you know, shoot your own foot off, for lack of a better word, when it comes to your money. So I think that this is an important point, too. We've observed, so we've been, like I said, interviewing these many, many couples. And one of the questions we ask is, when was the first time that you ever had to address money together? Right? and. So many of them say either when we moved in together or for the wedding. And the wedding is like, to me, the wedding is not like a real life event. The wedding is a special event. Yeah. It, is, it is an event that that you, everybody, you know, there might be different sources of pooled funds going in for the wedding. And, it's, and that, that is not, a wedding does not illustrate people's financial value system. It doesn't, it can, but it, it sometimes it doesn't. And it doesn't really shed light on spending habits. It doesn't really get into the day-to-day, -day, you know, or your risk tolerance. Like mm -hmm. that's probably not the greatest time to be having those first conversations about money is like planning for this one big bucket list special event. As far as I'm concerned, like you have to be able to air that laundry together before you get serious. It shouldn't be that you're sitting on your honeymoon and finding out that your partner's got credit card debt. Like that is terrible. That is not okay. That back to really like underscoring the central point here. Like our money values are our values. So when you're discussing these things and you're getting serious with a partner, this has to be part of the discussion. Even if you know, you may not sit down and say, like, well, I here's here's how I budget. You know, we're on our fifth date and let me let me bust out my spreadsheet. Yeah, that's very attractive. No, but I mean, there has to be some greater incorporation of your thoughts around spending, budgeting, risk tolerance, just to name a few. I mean, Doug could tell you more than more than I, but these things shouldn't wait until you're until you're in the merge phase. <laughs> Where, yeah. where you're trying to talk about cohabitating or what your future looks like together. You really should both 
know what you're getting into. So Douglas, the working title of your book that's coming out next year is The Merge, Navigating the Power Struggles Over Money and Relationships. Heather mentioned at the beginning of this interview, uh, while you've been interviewing couples doing research for this book, you've not only learned about them and what they've been going through, but you've learned a lot about yourselves. Tell me something you've learned about yourself by interviewing these people and talking to them about power dynamics and money in the relationships. I think it's a great question. And I think we've we've been humbled. Like I think Heather and I, you know, in speaking with people outside of where we live in our own community have gained a much greater appreciation uh, for people in general, but for how people approach their relationships and approach money in their relationships. I think initially we set out with the idea that, man, everyone's going to be a complete and utter disaster and mess. And in in reality, it's it's a spectrum of of situations. And we've spoken to a lot of people who have their act together uh, and have great communication when it comes to their finances and come from humble, humble beginnings. Uh, we've spoken to a lot of farming families, which has been particularly interesting. Uh, in terms of their perception of wealth and money and happiness. So getting outside of our own communities and our own comfort zones when it comes to our view of money has been very refreshing. It points out the things that Heather and I are doing well and you know, certainly work hard, certainly have conversations, but it also points out things that we could be doing better there are folks that are really down in the details of their financial life and live and breathe it sometimes too much you could argue but likely enough to where they really have their finger on the pulse of of what they currently have and, and what they want for themselves so that's been that's been very rewarding and and again the keyword here is humbling i think uh one one point i wanted to make here a question that we ask every couple that we interview is whether they feel like they have enough. And I don't say enough money, we just say enough. Yeah. And the diversity of responses is very interesting. There are people who objectively earn far less income than others who without hesitation and it's not just their answer it's it's the it's there's no hesitation. Yes. We've got a roof over our head, we have a loving family. Um, I've got a supportive partner. Yes. If if nothing changed today, like beyond today, we'd be happy. And I think for for me, and I'm I'm I know for Doug as well, because Doug and I are like, we are not from the enough, we are from the never enough camp. We are always working. We're oh, it's not just about work, but I I I think that like we needed a little bit of that gut check. Like it really, maybe it is enough. Maybe everything we have is enough too. So I think that that's been one of the most, when he says humbling, I mean, man, that's probably one of the most um, enlightening things that we've kind of internalized about our own relationship, our own privileges, our own fortunes, despite all the work that we have in front of us in in writing our next book and and the next phase of Doug's practice and everything like that is like, yes, it already is enough and it should already be enough. Well, Heather and Douglas, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. When I think about what we've talked about, I guess I could sum it up in a simple sentence. While clearly money can't buy you love or happiness, not paying attention to the power dynamics when it comes to money in your relationships can certainly ruin a marriage. 
I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and how people can connect with you. So first and foremost, Heather, what is coming up next for you and Douglas? A book, (laughs) a book that we're working very hard on throughout all of 2024. Uh, We are spending our days interviewing as many real life couples as we can. So if anybody is interested in being interviewed, there is no story that is too boring or too crazy. We're really looking for all of them of, you know, couples of all different ages and ages and locations. Um, So really that's what's, that's what's next. And in the meantime, um, we are also writing a weekly newsletter that also uh, is growing and building out this community of people interesting, uh, interested in learning more about how to talk money better with their partners. And that's called the joint account. That's over on Beehive. Um, that's keeping us pretty busy throughout 2024 and 2025. And Douglas, what is the best way to get in touch with you if people have questions? Yeah, any social media profile, uh, most notably Twitter, where I have my my largest following, will have a uh, a link in a bio for everything Heather just mentioned, from uh, our newsletters to uh, the firm's website. If you're looking for professional help with your finances, but uh, we got a lot on our plate. We got to grow a firm, write a book, publish a newsletter every week, raise a couple kids. And figure out how to have a little fun in our free time. Uh, I don't think we would have it any other way. Uh, our our friends are quite perplexed as to uh, you know what what we're doing and how we're doing all of this. And uh, I, I guess they'll they'll we'll we'll come out of our work hole at some point in time. I guess twenty late twenty twenty five. But yeah, you uh, the handle is at Doug Bonaparte across all of social media. And for Heather, it's at Average Joel. So the book is The Merge, Navigating the Power Struggles Over Money in Relationships. Look for it in late 2025. Douglas and Heather Bonaparte, thank you so much for being on Earn and Invest. Thank you for having us. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. As we were having this conversation with Heather and Douglas, I started thinking about the different types of money avatars there are in relationships. And I came up with three important avatars. I'm not saying these are the only avatars, but these were the three that really came to mind. I think in any relationship, you often have the money maker, the money spender, and the oblivious partner. Maybe not in every relationship, but at least these are three common tropes that we all face. So let's break them down. The money maker. When we talk about power dynamics in a relationship, there is always this underlying feeling that the person who makes the most money has the most power. And we start to think that the money maker is the one who should make the spending decisions. But honestly, when we look at the situation, we know this is obviously not true. We see this often when we have one spouse who's out there making money and another spouse who's home taking care of the kids. And we tend to forget that the work of taking care of the kids or taking care of the home or supporting the spouse who's the money maker, those are all jobs unto themselves. So maybe they're unpaid jobs. But they are jobs nonetheless, and therefore we can't only look at the person who's making the money and say that their input is most important, uh, because the other partner may not be making money, but they're doing essential jobs that are necessary so that the money maker can make money. So that's the money maker. 
Now let's talk about the money spender. We tend to blame the money spenders in relationships. Usually one partner is more spendy than the other, and because of this, they are often the cause of all the tension. While it is true, usually in a relationship you have one person who worries less about spending and the other one who doesn't, usually the person who's pushing all the spending is actually doing that in support of the spouse or the other family members. And so it is true, like some people have a relationship where one person spends more than the other, but usually the spending person is doing it to serve them both. Now, there can be disagreements on how much is spent and what is spent on, but the trope to blame the spender in the relationship probably is misplaced, and probably there needs to be a deeper discussion of what is spent on, and why. And just because one partner's not interested in spending doesn't mean the spending doesn't need to take place. So that's the second trope. And the last trope, and this might be the most difficult, is the oblivious partner. So I see this all the time in financial independence. I've seen this in relationships. When I talk to couples, honestly, Usually there's one person who is into the finances, who's tracking the budget, maybe who's worried about raises and investments and all those things, and the other partner who kind of lays the responsibility all at their feet and wants to know nothing about it. That doesn't mean they don't want to spend. It doesn't mean they don't want to go ahead with their lives and enjoy money. It just means that the stress and tension and worry of thinking about money is so great that they leave it all at their partner's feet. This can be a destructive relationship in the sense that it puts all the stress, worry, and anxiety on one partner. And usually that partner who is managing the finances usually is reluctant to spend as much. So there's a natural tension there for both partners to disagree. So what do we do about this? Well, I think we can speak to each avatar separately. I think when it comes to the money maker avatar, we have to realize that both spouses, both partners' roles are essential regardless of whether they're making lots of money or not. And that ultimately, especially when you get married, you're really working as a team. And so this is the rose and the gardener model that one person might be the money maker, the rose that's growing and being tended to. But then there's the gardener who's toiling away and maybe not making a lot of money, but they're making sure that rose can grow and shine. And so I think really all that needs to be done is a recognition of these roles and an acceptance of them. When it comes to the money spender, I think the key here is transparency and finances and responsibility for the finances need to be shared so that money spender can see exactly how much the spending is impacting savings and retirement savings and those type of things. There's no easy answer to this one, but I think shared responsibility is the best. And last, the reluctant spouse. And again, this might be the hardest. It's important that reluctant spouses become aware of the financial situation of the family because I believe the stress it puts on the money manager is huge And I think a lot of us, as Heather and Douglas were talking about, it's really nice to have a partner in making some of these most difficult decisions. In other words, better decisions get made. So at least off the top of my head, those are the three money avatars in relationships. I'm wondering how you see yourself or your partner in these avatars. How have your spending habits affected you as a couple? 
All right, I leave things running just for a few minutes to catch anything we talk about afterwards. Is there anything I didn't ask you about, any kind of salient or key point that you wanted to get across that we didn't chat about? Oh, I think you're a fantastic host, and and you really not only did a great job listening, but did a wonderful job getting research to talk to us about something that, you know, we've only started to work on over the last quarter or two. So uh, tip of the hat to you. One of the things I'll say in my own experience is one of the best ways actually to get the content straight in your brain for a book is by doing interviews like this because it forces you, the questions force you to clarify your thoughts and ideas and you start developing, you know, the words and the sentences and the ideas that eventually carry through to the book. Well, right. That was like what we did with um, the behavioral finance summit that we uh Doug and I presented there, and it was such a great first exercise in putting putting together those thoughts, synthesizing those thoughts. But we're we're in it. I mean, like we're very much still in this, um, like all year. So the writing is happening this year. <laughs>